Okay. Um, I realized I spoke, I think, sometimes very, very, very quickly uh, last week because I was trying to finish in time and, and, and I uh, didn't do that. So maybe I'll just slow things down and we'll get as far as we can. Uh, we ended in circle eight. Uh, circle eight and circle nine are both regions of fraud. Uh, in circle eight, there are actually 10 subdivisions. So there are 10, actually there are more than 10 sins, but there are 10 groupings of sins within circle eight. So I'm just highlighting uh, a couple of those. Um, the circle eight is dedicated to uh, what's called simple fraud. And this is um, fraud uh, against, or to sin against uh, natural relationships that are necessary, necessary for society to operate. Um, then complex fraud, which is in circle nine, are uh, sins involving special relationships, like in a family, uh, defrauding or betraying someone in a family. That's circle nine. So circle eight is a broader category. So for instance, when you uh, put gasoline in your car, you're trusting that the 12 gallons that it says on the pump is 12 gallons. So that, if you were to be defrauded in that case, that would be simple fraud unless the owner of the gasoline station was someone in your family. But then it wouldn't be directed at you personally, most likely. Okay, so I'm going to highlight out of the uh, 10 or more um, sins of, um, in Circle 8, I'm just doing a couple of them. We saw hypocrisy at the end of last week, and that is uh, pretense to virtue. Um, uh, a little further down is um, in uh, Circle 8, uh, the fraud of uh, false counsel. And I've actually got the wrong person cited there. Fear not, I tell you the sin you will commit, it is forgiven. It said to Guido da Monte Feltro, it's misspelled too. Uh, that is said to him by the Pope. Um, so I'll get to that in a minute. Uh, but I had Guido in my mind there because he's the uh, character that Dante encounters. Um, Guido de Montefeltro uh, was um, a person who was uh, very successful in military matters. He was a military strategist uh, called the Fox, I believe. Not the Swamp Fox, just the Fox. And um, the, uh, he retired, as people often did in the Middle Ages, and went into uh, the Franciscan order, or, and others went into other orders, in order to make up for the their sins during their, li in their lives. He had done that. Uh, the Pope needed his advice uh, and called him uh, out of the um, monastery, well, not the monastery, but wherever Fran Franciscans live. And um, he promised uh, Guido that whatever sin he might con uh, commit in advising the Pope, the sin was already forgiven. So the Pope says, fear not, I tell you, the sin you will commit, it is forgiven. And so Guido uh, advises him to make a false treaty, in effect, for the Pope to make a false treaty, or a treaty he intends to, uh, to renege on. So the, uh, the false counsel is really, there's a, uh, it's twice, the, the false counsel that Guido gives uh, in this um, case the false here means evil counsel, and uh, the false counsel that the um, 
Pope makes, in a certain sense, and that it's a lie. But it's really directed towards uh, Guido's um, evil counsel that he gives the Pope. Because the counsel is to uh, make an offer that he will take back. So uh, he dies, uh, Guido does, and then um, St. Francis comes for his body because he's a Franciscan. And then um, an evil cherubim uh, comes and takes him basically out of the, the hands of St. Francis and says, uh, Tim, don't you know one cannot be absolved unless repentant, nor can one both repent and will a thing at once. The one is canceled by the other. So he can't, you can't be pre-forgiven of the sin is the point. And he is referring here to another line that says, I guess you didn't know that the devil was a philosopher, something like that. And he's referring to the principle of non-contradiction, um, which is it's stated various ways, but the idea is a thing cannot be and not be at the same time in the same way. So a door cannot be, if we agree on what closed means, a door can't be closed and open at the same time. I mean, it can be a jar, but that's a different thing. Not the jar that you put preserves in, but open a little bit. So um, the, uh, he's defeated by uh, a, uh, assuming a false philosophical principle. This actually comes back up. The principle of non-contradiction will come back up in a certain way when we get to paradise. And I might remember to bring it up again. OK, and then he, he's going to have a son in um, purgatory who is a late repentant. We have a pre-repentant, which doesn't work, but a late, rep late repentance does. OK, so that is Guido misspelled the name, and it didn't even belong there either. OK, so that's fraud, one of the circles of fraud. Um, and again, there were, there were 10, really, circles, but I don't have time to go over all of them. The uh, circle nine of treachery, there are, various, there are four different kinds of treachery uh, that Dante gives. One of them is treachery against party. And this means some kind of political affiliation. Sometimes it's interpreted as party, uh, could even be nation, could be city, which would be appropriate for Dante. Uh, and there's this, um, I wanted to say one other thing about Guido. Guido. Um, before we get to this, Guido, like other characters, tells a fine story uh, where all the other, everybody else is to blame. Okay, so it, it's, a, it's a beautiful story he tells and it's tragic, but he never mentions his, that he's to blame. That's kind of a theme uh, that goes throughout, and that happens in this one too, the Circle Nine of Treachery. Um, uh, here's one of the um, more uh, pitiful characters. It's Ugolino, and um, He's trapped in the ice. The ninth circle of hell, hell is a, a lake of ice. Now, of course, Dante realizes that the primary um, image of hell is hell fire, and he has that a little bit, not very much in hell. But hell is a frozen lake of ice. I mentioned this last week because the center of hell is the furthest point in the universe from God. Uh, so they're um, away as far as they can be from uh, the fire of God's love. So it's very, very cold. And there are other ways to think about the cold, but he goes against our expectation, perhaps. Uh, Ugolino conspired with Archbishop Ruggieri um, 
and then was uh, betrayed the city, and the Ruggieri betrayed him. So there was a mutual betrayal going on, and they're frozen in the ice, and um, Ugolino is chewing. They're frozen right together, and Ugolino is chewing on Ruggieri's skull. So it's very kind of disgusting. Um, but the story, this is based on a true story, the story of Ugolino, who was betrayed by the Ruggieri after Ruggieri managed to gain political power. And um, uh, Ugolino was locked in a tower, they call it the Tower of Hunger, or they did eventually, with a couple of sons and grandsons. And they're, they're turned all into his sons in the story for simplicity's sake. And Ugolino tells this very pitiful story about being locked in the tower. Doesn't tell why he's there, because he had he was a betrayer, he's a, a traitor. Uh, but it's a very pitiful story. Um, the, they're locked in the tower, and one day they uh, nail the door shut, and he realizes they're no longer to be, going to be fed, and then they're starving, and then the sons offer Ugolini, Ugolino their own bodies for him to feed on um, because they're all dying, and he says no, and then they die one by one. It's very pitiful over several days. He's crying out their names, so it is, seems very tragic. And then eventually uh, he will die, but he says after, at the end of his story, then hunger proved more powerful than grief. And uh, this was interpreted uh, for hundreds of years to mean that uh, he died of hunger rather than grief. That's how it was interpreted, but in the last hundred years or so, there was an alternative interpretation that was seen in this line, uh, which might simply be uh, in people's imaginations. Uh, anyone see what the other interpretation might be? And this is pretty literal from the original, yes. Yes, yeah. And the justification for that is he's chewing on Archbishop Ruggieri's head, but he was starved anyway, so that would work whether or not he did eat the children. Uh, the other argument against that interpretation is it's based on a true story, and that's not part of the true story. So there, that didn't happen. Uh, it's not part of the, the history. So, but Dante changes history sometimes. Anyway, it's, it might say more about the modern world uh, than anything that this was an interpretation. But I think the first in instances of this were several hundred years later. Okay, of course, Dante was being interpreted very, very, very early on, within, uh, right after his death. Okay, what's another realm though that I've got there? Uh, treachery against guests, Friar Alberigo. Um, Friar Alberigo had some conflict with, his, I think it was his brother, someone in his family, um, invited to, the, um, uh, to his house for some kind of um, um, dinner to uh, make up and then he uh, betrays uh, the guest and kills them all, okay? Okay, the standard kind of story. Um, what, what's interesting here is uh, his, he's frozen in the ice, and because of his tears, his eyes are frozen over. And uh, Dante uh, promises him that if Fray Alberigo tells his story, that he will break the ice from his eyes and give him some relief. Um, then he tells the story, but Dante doesn't do that. Um, Friar Alberigo says, but now at last, give me the hand you promised, open my eyes. Dante says, I did not, did not open them to be mean to him, 
was a generous reward. So uh, Dante becomes the traitor here in the circle of the treacherous. Now, earlier he becomes wrathful, perhaps, in the circle of wrath. So we see this a little bit. But at this point, uh, Dante uh, is or has uh, detached himself from the pity that he had to uh, detach himself from. He's no longer pitying the soul. So this seems to be a righteous response. And because of the, the punishment uh, pattern of contrapasso, where the punishment can be um, something similar to your sin or a contrast of the sin. Either way, it highlights what the sin is. Uh, Dante, by betraying the traitor, himself becomes an instrument of the contrapasso punishment. And therefore, Dante, by betraying his word to Friar Alberigo, becomes an instrument of uh, the justice of God. Okay, So it could be interpreted that he's just kind of a... A low life here, he broke his word, but I think it's uh, intended, especially since he's so deep into hell, he's, he's got to detach himself from pity pretty soon if he's not uh, already done so, uh, that it's actually intended uh, to show that Dante has actually made spiritual progress. So he is cruel to this person in a way that's appropriate. Cruel may be the wrong word, he, uh, but it seems cruel. Um, he acts justly towards him as a contrapasso uh, punishment himself. Okay, so uh, this is progress. Okay. Uh, what's next? Uh, Eudeka is the final name for Judas, uh, treachery against the Lord. And this is uh, Satan, uh, who's described like a bat. He's got bat wings, at least. Um, he is, he fell from heaven, so he's face down. He's collapsed. Of course, since you could look at it either way, but he fell face down. He, the ice is frozen up uh, basically to his armpits. He's chewing on, uh, Satan is chewing on Judas, uh, Brutus, and Cassius. So we have traitors of empire and traitors to God here, and that's what uh, Dante's speaking about over and over again. Uh, the three uh, faces uh, are a mock, Trinity, the... Uh, the eating of the, or the chewing, the eternal chewing on the uh, three sinners is a mock uh, Eucharistic feast or heavenly banquet. So everything is upside down, literally here, and uh, the truth is mocked by Satan because that's what he is. He, he mocks God, he mocks the truth. Uh, beneath each uh, face, two mighty wings stretched out, the size you might expect of this huge bird. I never saw a ship with larger sails, so the, the wings are flapping here. Not feathered wings, but rather like ones a bat would have. He flapped them constantly, keeping three winds continuously in motion. Tulacocitus, eternally in ice, and that's the name of the frozen lake. So he is beating the wings and uh, the wind. And Dante has, has seen him from afar and thinks it's a windmill or something, but he sees clearer, more clearly as he approaches. And so he is um, freezing the ice while he's beating the wings. Um, so he's in um, eternal flight by beating the wings, but of course he's motionless. And uh, I mentioned earlier that one of the uh, most insightful comments by a student, maybe the most insightful comment by a student, uh, this was a few years ago, was made in relationship to this scene here at the end of the Inferno. And I was talking about the irony 
that he's uh, beating the wings and the beating of the wings freezes him in the ice. And the student said, maybe he's beating the wings in order to be frozen in the ice. Because this is the point furthest in the universe from God. This is where Satan wants to be. At the same time, you see he's eternally fleeing from God. And so if he weren't frozen in the ice, fleeing from God would bring him closer to God because of the spherical nature of the universe. So he's in the center. If he's flying away from God, any motion out of the center brings him closer. But by freezing the ice, then he keeps himself from God while maintaining the desire to flee from him. If you turn the world inside out, then he could flee forever in the other direction. But since the world from the medieval point of view is the other way, uh, he has to be stuck here. Does that make sense? Okay. Anyway, so I thought, I wish I had thought of that. And the commentary that I've read, I haven't picked that up. I mean, other people might have noticed that. But, uh, you know, it's, it's possible that this student saw something that um, commentators overlook. And I think it makes sense. It fits perfectly into the scheme. Um, anyway, so at senior send-off, we have a senior send-off where we roast the students or some salute them. Uh, I didn't roast him. I s saluted him. And, um, but you never know what's going to come out of a student's mouth. He was just an average student, right? Um, but sometimes things are going on in there that you don't, you're unaware of. Okay. Or I'm unaware of. They're unaware of too, I suppose. Okay. Um, what's next? Okay. Then uh, Dante and Virgil, they have to crawl down. Uh, Satan's beating his wings, and they go. They run at a certain time so they're not crushed by the wings. And there's a, some kind of crack in the ice, and they're able to crawl down. And Dante gets confused here because... When they get to this very center, Virgil has to turn him around so that he can walk upright as he exits the earth. Uh, and you, don't, you wouldn't believe how long it takes me to explain this to students. I draw it on the board. If you're, if you're walking down, if you had staircase going down to the center of the earth, when you got to the center, if you wanted to walk out the other side, you would have to turn yourself around. Okay, so um, they don't get it. But... Um, uh, Dante's, uh, Dante is confused here. He's uh, lost um, his orientation. Virgil explains it to him. And so they finally get out. We climbed, he first and I behind, until through a small round opening ahead of us, I saw the lovely things the, heaven hold, the heavens hold, and we came out to see once more the stars. And that ends the Inferno. Now, the Inferno, the Purgatorio, and the Paradiso all end with the same word, which is stars. So, uh, and the stars, of course, for us, aren't what the stars are for them. The stars for us are these, you know, suns that are traveling at trillions of miles per hour apart from each other, and the, the, uh, the, the mythic quality of the stars is lost in the modern world. But for them, that is actually the heavens. Uh, and so he sees the heavens. So uh, hell ends on a positive note. He sees the stars. The stars are a sign of hope, and then the purgatory, and then the paradiso as well. So if you read only in, in the Inferno, you get the impression that Dante was a pretty negative guy because, you know, all these people are in hell and they're suffering. But uh, two-thirds of the Divine Comedy are dedicated to those who are saved and will eventually have the beatific vision, and only one-third to the damned. So it's more positive than you might think. Okay. I think that is, oh, yeah. and then, then that was, that's it. 
for the for the Inferno, and then uh, for people are asking about translations. Some of this is hard to know, like fidelity to original. How do you know? Sometimes you have to read commentary about the translation itself, or have the original. And if you know some Romance languages, there are things that you can figure out and see whether or not they're sticking to it. But that would be that's a very difficult criteria. Readability. You judge that yourself if it's readable to you, if it makes sense. That's why I said the Dorothy Sayers translation is not very readable, but her notes are very good. And then clarity and thoroughness of notes. Uh, guides, uh, print guides is a, um, a book called The Complete Dante Worlds. There is a website called Dante Worlds as well, and the, the book is the, has a little more to it, but it's a very good site. A Modern Reader's Guide is another one. Critical Companion to Dante. Those are just three that I've got, but they're... There are many other ones. Uh, there are several biographies. Dante Lights the Way, which I think is very good. It's out of print. You can get it at the Greenville Library. Uh, the Life of Dante by Boccaccio. This would have been the first one written. A short book, Dante, by uh, R.W.B. Lewis. Dante in Love, which came out just a couple of years ago. Well, within the last decade. Uh, Dante Alighieri by Toynbee. This is well-known. He cites uh, Boccaccio a lot. Uh, Robert Jean Hollander has scholarly notes. The text is very faithful from what I can tell. He's the, she's the professional poet. He is the Dante scholar, so they, this was a kind of a big deal when they came out with this. He's maybe the leading American Dante scholar today. Mark Musa, that's a common one. John Charty, Anthony Eastland's appendices are very, very good. He gives you extra things. They're not notes to the text. He does that, but he gives you appendices so you can read um, excerpts of what other writers before Dante wrote about their visions of hell, for instance. Those are the kind of appendices he gives you. Very good. Dorothy Sayers, as I mentioned, for the introduction and the notes, but not so much for the actual text. Um, I think all of these, except for Dorothy Sayers, have their strengths. I would only have on the, on the Hollander, when the notes tend to be scholarly in that they will refer you to other scholars' works. But it's, it's written for a popular audience. So he does both the notes that explain. Uh, he gives you notes about his own translation choices. Like, it could be this way, it could be that way. So there, it's very, very detailed. Um, I put that at the top because it seems to me that you get the closest to the original here. But what do I know? I'm not the expert. It's based on what I've read and what people have written, but I'm not reading. I can read some of Dante because it's it's a Romance language, but you know there are plenty of things that I wouldn't know and I don't uh, pretend to. Uh, these are relatively expensive, though, even in paperback. I think so. The Moose and the Charty ones will be the maybe the least expensive. And I, as I said, I just got one today in the mail. I don't remember why I ordered this one. I think just because I hadn't, didn't have it. Um, Oxford World Classics. It's not very expensive. Translated by C.H. Cisson. Anyway, so that's one. Get, okay. Cisson? Um, any questions? Or, you know everything. That's good. Yes. Some of the sins he puts closest to Satan wouldn't seem 
subpoena is offensive as one spitter away. So have you heard any good explanations of why the scheme of how it's Yes, there are uh, a couple of things. One, when you're going down, uh, uh, initially seems as though he's doing the seven deadly sins, which is what he does do for purgatory. He breaks that off after the fifth sin of sloth, so we don't have envy or pride. Pride uh, actually prevails throughout. There's just not a, a circle, but they're all proud because they don't repent. Envy, there's no circle of envy, but he does speak about envy a lot, usually associated with Florence and other cities. So my own view is, um, I said, I believe that within his structure of hell, there is it's, uh, chaos within structure. And so what you expect uh, hell to be as you're going along ten, turns out not to be that. So that's the disorder within the order. Uh, what he decided to do was this threefold um, incontinence and then uh, malice subdivided into violence and fraud so that the sins against the passions, or the appetites, are the least bad. Uh, the sins against the will, which he's calling violence. In, in some translations, it'll be called bestiality because he's taking that from um, Aristotle, but it means the willful uh, violence. A violence which turns you into a beast, actually, something like a beast. And then the intellect being the high, highest of man's faculty, any, any sins having to do with deception, then are sins against the intellect, and they're the most human sins, and therefore they harm man the most, because the uh, intellect pertains to him. If we have the, uh, the uh, excluding the angels, uh, man, and then the animals, and then the plants, and then the rocks. It's the man with the intellect. Uh, so that's what sets him apart. And uh, so that, those are the worst sins. But that means flattery, which we didn't talk about. Uh, flattery is worse than murder. Maybe not worse for you if you're the victim of it, but he's saying it's, it's worse for the, in a strange way, uh, the one who commits the sin. Because it's a more of an affront against human nature. Because the beast can kill you. The beast can't murder you, but the beast can be violent. And well, there are animals, of course, the animal kingdom that do commit a kind of fraud. And that's a, a question I don't know how Dante would answer, except that it's through um, natural, or through instinct, I suppose. It's not willed. OK. Yes? There's a kind of mercy there, yes, because uh, mercy is to reduce or erase or remove uh, a punishment that's due to someone. So you throw yourself on the mercy of the court. Okay? Uh, the souls in hell are suffering because of their sins, but their suffering would actually be increased were they in the presence of God. So that the, uh, the pain that they suffer being in his presence is greater than the pain they suffer in hell because they have fled God, they've rejected God, and the fire of God's love uh, would be experienced differently from the saints who chose him uh, than it would be by the uh, sinners in hell who rejected him. That would be the idea. So it's both just because they're being punished 
uh, but their punishment would be worse if they were in heaven. It's subjective to the person so that the saints, of course, they accept the fire of God's love and it warms them, I suppose, or enlightens them because there's light associated mostly in paradise. But to the uh, sinners in hell, it would be a different experience. So the fire, there's a fire of punishment and there's a fire of purgation and then there's a fire of love. So we have that in the three realms. Uh, and you experience the fire differently according to your disposition towards it. So the souls in purgatory are suffering and some of the sufferings are similar to the souls in hell, but they experience the suffering differently because they're disposed favorably to it in purgatory. They want to suffer because it's through the suffering that they detach themselves from sin and attach themselves to God. So it's just like if you're, if you're training an athlete, uh, then the, the suffering that you may experience is different uh, because your attitude towards it than if you, someone forced you to do it against your will or it was inflicted upon you. Yes, makes sense. I have this, one year I want to try this out where, because I had a philosophy teacher in college who did this, where I say everything that's just the opposite of really what's going on and seeing if the students buy it. I, I had a philosophy teacher who taught by uh, error. Everything he said was wrong, but he was testing the students by teaching error. And if you didn't do the readings and think about it, you were just sitting in, in the class going, yeah, yeah, that sounds right. And then... <laughs> He'd rip into you at the end, so he was a character, as we say. Okay. Um, I've got a handout this week for purgatory. So I'm not sure. I mean, I've got just about enough. Maybe those are here, who are here together can take one. To Yeah, that would be actually very good. You decide. Okay. Let's see here. Um, yeah, okay. Um, I based this on uh, Dorothy Sayers' chart. Uh, I added a few things to it. Um, so I'll explain some things and then we'll get into the story of purgatory. And I'll do it a little differently from the Inferno. And I probably will run out of time, but I'm not going to, I'm going to try not to speak so quickly. I'll just, we'll end where we are. I'm reducing uh, the inferno for my college prep class at St. Joseph's is we do a canto a day. So it takes 33 classes. So I just condensed how many hours that is, 20-something hours, into two. Okay, so, and the same thing. Then I do the purgatory in Paradiso at a, a slightly faster pace with the honors. Um, I do two or three a day, I think. So we go pretty quickly, so I'm leaving out lots of stuff, but then you can read and find out where I'm wrong. Um, the purgatory, purgatory chart, I'm not even sure if that has everything on it. Um, all the way to Song of Benedict. Okay, uh, this actually shows um, how the, the structure of purgatory is highly ordered, and Dante doesn't deviate from the structure in the way that he does in hell, and I think that it's either purposeful or it's applicable. I mean, it makes sense here because the souls are ordered 
uh, towards God. It says reading order there because you're going down the page, but you're going up purgatory. And I'll show you a picture of that in a minute. But um, there is, there are uh, the various circles or regions, two regions outside of purgatory, and then seven terraces because they're going around the outside of this mountain. Uh, so that's where we get the knot. What happened there? Oh, that's going to keep happening, I bet. Oh, isn't that sweet? That's my daughter. Uh, one of the daughters, okay, with her head cut off that picture. So um, I guess I should just tap it every once in a while. Um, and then there is something at the bottom you can't see here. Uh, maybe it didn't print. Oh, yeah, the earthly paradise. So it doesn't, maybe if I do that, no. Oh, there we go, earthly paradise. So that's the 9 and 10. It's also a 7 plus 2, 9 plus 1. Um, so we have all those places. Um, there, before you get to purgatory, these are people that haven't made it quite through the gate yet. They're, they're hanging outside because they either just arrived or they were excommunicated. They had to repent, of course, but they, were excommunic they died excommunicated. Uh, those who uh, were late repentance. Oh, and something happened here. Um, no, no, that's okay. The late repentance, the indolent or the lazy, the unshriven, meaning they didn't confess, negligent rulers. So those who repented late, and so they got to hang out of uh, purgatory based on how long they delayed their repentance, things like that. Uh, then uh, purgatory proper, we go through the gate, and Dante himself is going through the stages of purgation here. Uh, we have lower, middle, and upper purgatory. Lower purgatory is love perverted, and here it's a love of neighbor's harm. Um, talk about that later, but for instance, pride is love of self perverted to contempt for neighbor. So you love yourself excessively, and that love turns into, or is perverted into a contempt for neighbor. Envy is love of one's own good, which is okay, right? Perverted to desire to deprive neighbor of his goods. So these are all loves that can be proper, would be proper, but they're perverted in some way. And then wrath is love of justice perverted to revenge. So that's the lower purgatory, although it looks like upper purgatory on the chart. Okay, I guess I get reversed it, but again, I was copying some of this from Dorothy Sayers. If you have your translation, you'll see something that looks very much like this. Uh, disordered love of good. Uh, we've got um, middle and upper here. Deficient love of the primary good. The primary good is God. And sloth or ascidia is the uh, failure to love God. It's lack of zeal for God, and God's the primary good. Uh, or uh, it can be an excess, an excess of love of secondary goods, which are things that God created. So we have disordered love of good things. So it's okay right, to love these things. Uh, avarice, the avarice and prodigal, excessive love of money and power or comfort, however you want to interpret the, the prodigal. I think we talked about them. The gluttons, uh, excessive love of pleasure, and then the lustful excessive love of persons. So these are all things, pleasure, persons, uh, money, and even power, right? Those all can be loved properly, God certainly, uh, and those are disordered. Um, so he has taken the um, standard order of um, the seven deadly sins, or one of the standard orders you would, you would find in the Middle Ages, uh, from uh, worst to best, if you want to call it that. But so you'll notice here, the lustful, the gluttons, the avarice and prodigal, the wrathful and the slothful, slothful, those appear more or less in that order. A little difference here. 
uh, in, but they're together in hell, actually. So they're both in the river stick. So it really does follow that order uh, in hell, just in the other, other direction. Okay, so very ordered here. Uh, I put some major characters here. Um, there aren't nearly, he doesn't meet as many characters, there aren't nearly as many of them in purgatory because he doesn't have as many subdivisions. But they're, you can't keep track of them in, in purgatory, but even less so in the inferno. Uh, they all have penances, which are uh, very, pretty much straightforward, and it's fairly easy to see uh, why the penance is what it is. Um, there is a meditation in, ah, put it again. See? I won't do that on the other thing. So I'll get to this quickly. Um, there are lessons that he learns, and I've got them listed here. Um, uh, the quia and the proper quid, proper quid, I'll spend a little bit of time on that. Um, but there's a whip and a bridle. The whip is the virtue to model yourself after, and the bridle is the vice to overcome. So each uh, region has what he calls the whip and the bridle. So the whip brings you forward, and the bridle restrains you. And so he has examples, positive and negative examples, every time. And there's always a positive example in the whip of something from the life of the Blessed Virgin. And then we'll have examples often, if not always, from the Old Testament ex and examples from pagan history uh, for the brides, I mean, for, for the, uh, the whip. And then the bridles will be examples from uh, the Bible and um, uh, ancient history, for instance. Uh, there are various prayers that are associated with each level, and the prayers are appropriate uh, to that level. There's something in the prayer that speaks to the sin that has to be overcome. There are various guardians here, but they're really after Cato, who's the kind of like the, the crusty old guy who meets you at the beginning. Uh, they're really after this, for the most part, angels uh, that are there to give Dante a pass up to the next level. You don't really see much of them. Uh, and then uh, there's a song or benediction, a few songs. One of them is Dante's own composition uh, that's sung uh, with a friend of his, Casella. So Dante does meet some friends of his here. And then uh, the seven deadly sins are all associated with one of the Beatitudes. So uh, quite uh, brilliant on Dante's part to make the association of the Beatitudes to the seven deadly sins. Now, you might think he's stretching it at some points, but he does do this. And then he meets uh, Beatrice there towards the end and the earthly paradise. And let's see if there's anything else I need to say that. Uh, Matilda, the strange character. Um, okay, so if you read the Purgatory, you can have the chart there uh, to aid you. Fact. The major characters are real people. Well, Dante believes they're real people. Well, let me say this. In the, let, me, let me take that back. Is there someone from mythology that might not be real in the Purgatorio? They may be mentioned in passing. The characters he speaks to are real. We, I do know in um, Paradiso, there's one character from the Trojan War. How do I do that? Come on. Oh, done. Uh, presentations. Um, but whether or not Dante believed the character from the Trojan War was real, I don't know. 
So we may treat some people as mythological, and Vedante may think, treat them as historical. Now, when you get into, the, into hell, the mythological creatures like the Minotaur and the Centaurs, I'm assuming Dante treats them as mythological creatures. I don't know that he believed that they really existed. But they, they're all symbolic in the Inferno. Well, that's the end. You saw the end. Oh, well. <laughs> Got to go home. Was there a question? No? Okay. Oh, I guess I got to press that button. Purgatorio. Okay. All right. Wow. Okay. Don't think we'll finish the purgatory. Um, but a lot of really is establishing the principle. Uh, and then once you know the principles and you have the good notes, then you can uh, read actually fairly quickly, especially if you've read it before. It's easy to get bogged down in things that are uh, important for Dante because they have to do with the political circumstance that he found himself in. Um, and uh, I would say that's the last thing to get bogged down in. Do that later. Get bogged down in that later um, after you've read a few times. All right, so here's the, um, the Purgatory. It's this mountain. It is uh, it's the opposite of... Uh, hell, right? Hell's the huddled out and in the other direction. So the deeper you go, the more crowded or the more claustrophobic, claustrophobic you might become as you descend into hell because there's less and less space. As you ascend the Mount Purgatory, uh, because the, the mountain is narrower and narrower, you're actually, uh, the opposite is happening to you. More and more space is being opened up to you, so you're approaching the infinite. So the, I guess in hell, they're pro approaching the very finite, small, and in purgatory, they're approaching the infinity, infinitude of God. Okay, so I don't know if you can see why that would be, but here, down here, because of the size of the base, there's less universe around you. Up at the top, since it's narrow, there's more universe around you. Does that make sense? Okay, it's kind of odd, but it works. Okay, so he's going to eventually, there's, there's a shore here, and people will ride by boat, and uh, he's going to eventually pass through the gate with a little bit of trouble, and then these are the, the terraces, or sometimes they're called the cornices, and uh, these are the various punishments that are being represented here until he gets to the earthly paradise, which is really uh, the gar seemingly the Garden of Eden. Okay. All right. Um, the doctrine of purgatory. Uh, it's a place or condition of temporal punishment for those who, departing this life in God's grace, uh, are not entirely free from venial faults uh, or have not fully paid the satisfaction due to their transgressions. Okay. Uh, the souls in purgatory on earth can aid each other with prayer, and this ends up being pretty important. And you end up having characters in purgatory that no one's praying for because they thought they were in hell. So you get, well, please have my wife pray for me. She's not right now. So it's a, a little sad. Uh, and then God always accepts repentance in the moment of death. Uh, so that's good. Uh, those in hell did not take advantage of that. And there are people in purgatory that they're surprised when they wake up to find out that's where they are. It's a big surprise to them. Um, 
Uh, okay, I already actually went through this, the new arrivals, et cetera. I actually showed you that on the chart. I showed you that. I have to talk about that. How about that? I didn't need to show you the chart. Okay, the new arrivals. Um, when um, the, the person in charge of everything right here is Cato, who is a virtuous pagan and also uh, committed suicide, uh, Cato of Utica, um, he opposed Caesar, which Brutus and Cassius did, and they find themselves in hell. So Dante doesn't make it easy always for the reader to determine why a soul is where he is. Um, some believe that Cato is actually unre unredeemed. He's not saved. Um, others believe that he is and that at the last day he will join others in heaven. Now, there's some arguments for and against, and Dante doesn't tell us which one. Against his redemption is he's unbaptized. Um, there are a couple of unbaptized in heaven, though, so there is a possibility. The other argument against it is he's not progressing in purgatory in the way that others are. He's there. That's his job uh, to show people the way uh, to the gate. So, but he doesn't go anywhere himself. He's kind of a, you know, he's not the nicest guy either. Um, arguments for are that uh, his wife's fate, his wife Marcia, is in limbo, and it doesn't matter to him. It doesn't move him when when he's told that oh we're gonna when Virgil says when I get back to limbo I'll t tell Marcia about you. It doesn't matter to him. So that might uh, imply that he's like the other of those who are saved. Uh, who don't really pay attention to those in hell. doesn't matter to them. Uh, he also issued forth from limbo, apparently or seemingly at the harrowing of hell, when the righteous of the Old Testament were rescued at um, Christ's crucifixion. That would argue seemingly for a salvation. But it's one you can get your PhD if you want, trying to answer this question. Uh, okay, uh, so Cato greets them. He's um, kind of a crusty old fellow. Um, there's a, there's a, uh, the ocean there that, uh, in a boat that's being driven by an angel arrives. Uh, these are uh, the new arrivals. They're just getting there. Some of them had to wait a long time to even be allowed on the boat. They all gather at the river Tiber and uh, get on this boat and but you don't have any guarantee that just because you're there first, it's kind of like Southwest Airlines. You just uh, you have to rush in. And anyway, he, he, some don't get them get there um, early. They have to wait and wait and wait. Uh, one soul tries to embrace uh, Dante. This is Casella, a musician friend of Dante's, uh, who had set some of Dante's poetry to music. And this is actually the the song that is sung in this section, Dante's uh, lyrics to the uh, song that Casella wrote the music for. Um, he tries to embrace uh, Dante, um, but because Dante has his body and Casella doesn't yet, they can't. And there, there are a lot of scenes in the Purgatorio which echo scenes in the Inferno. 
They're characters in the Purgatorio that echo characters in the Inferno. The difference is of the repentance. So they have the same sin. And so I think Dante makes clear in the Purgatorio that that's what's going on. Uh, this reminds me really of, uh, in some ways, the scene that he has with Brunetto Latini in the realm of the Sodomites in the Seventh Circle, violence against nature, uh, because Dante's unable to greet uh, his old teacher uh, properly. You get the impression that he would like to, but he can't because of the uh, uh, Brunetto Latini's on the burning plain and the fire is falling from the sky. And here, though, um, the um, the impossibility is simply because of the um, the bodied and the unbodied. Okay. Um, all right. So he sings a song. Uh, we see the um, so that's some of the new arrivals. I think I have the excommunicates next. Yeah, the excommunicates. Those who are excommunicated. Um, the important person here is uh, Manfred. Um, The important point, I suppose, of the excommunicates, excommunicates being in um, purgatory is the point that Dante's making that excommunication is serious, but that's not the last word. So one can repent at the end of one's life, still be excommunicated and saved. Okay, so excommunication is not uh, by itself uh, a guarantee of damnation. Um, Dante asks a question. This is the uh, quia and propter quid question. I'm just going to explain this briefly. Uh, uh, Dante expresses um, uh, some fear that he's been abandoned by Virgil at a certain point because he doesn't see Virgil's shadow. He sees his own, but not Virgil's, but Virgil doesn't cast a shadow. And uh, Virgil chastises him, uh, telling him that man cannot understand the infinite, can't understand everything. And he says to him, be satisfied with quia, unexplained, a human race. If you knew everything, no need for Mary to have born a son. So the incarnation is part of God's revelation. But if you already knew everything, whew, that wouldn't be necessary. Now, maybe, maybe, not, maybe or maybe not that's true. But this quia that he's speaking of uh, is uh, what we might call knowledge by induction uh, or a posteriori, which is to know a thing from its effect to its cause. The, um, so that is contrasted with the propter quid which is knowledge of why a thing is from cause to effect. The cause is the reason for the effect. And the knowledge of the propter quid um, is the more perfect knowledge. So if you can set up a syllogism, all cows are ruminants, all ruminants, ruminants have four stomachs, and therefore all cows have four stomachs, you can come to um, a perfect knowledge. It must be true. Whereas if we uh, know things from effect to cause, for instance, in science and observation, uh, then we come to tentative conclusions. Um, so our knowledge of God 
has to be that kind of imperfect knowledge. We can't start from uh, the, um, in a deductive way. We don't have the first principle. Now, we can posit a first principle and then conditions and draw conclusions, but we're not given the first principle through a philosophy. Okay, so this is, uh, uh, the reason I mentioned this, you don't have to follow all this, but this goes on throughout the Purgatorio. That's why I had to, added that column, which Dorothy Sayers didn't have in hers, of lessons. Dante's constantly being taught lessons in the uh, Purgatorio. There are things also in the Paradiso that he must learn as well, but it's striking. It very, seems very formal. It's formal in the Paradiso as well. But one thing after another, some of them are somewhat obscure to us philosophically. We wouldn't know why anybody would even care about, the, uh, about this, but uh, in Dante's day, they were burning philosophical issues that are, that are answered. Okay. Um, uh, yes? So he's being instructed on as to the proper quid. Is that, whereas previously you only knew, knew the quia? Uh, he says, right, uh, be satisfied with quia unexplained. So what he has is the knowledge of God through nature and the effects. Uh, now, he's, he's not, it seems not to be uh, including uh, faith in this, which is the revelation, but that still would not be um, the propter quid. Well, in some ways it would be, but not philosophically. Yeah, because that's where I was going as far as the first principles. I mean, yeah. There are certain things that we can do. Right, right. Yeah, um, he doesn't, he only raises the be satisfied with quia unexplained. I'm adding the rest of the story. Uh, because that's seemingly what he's speaking about. Um, but it's simply, uh, it's kind of an odd uh, place that he raises it. It, it seems to be, um, he chastises Dante seemingly, to me, a little excessively um, at this point uh, of Dante's, you know, fear that he's been abandoned. It seems maybe natural. So it looks like Virgil needs to teach him this lesson and he's just waiting for an opportunity, like you might with a child. I've got to teach him this lesson. I'm going to wait for something to happen so I can bring it up, even if it doesn't fit exactly right. That's what it looks like to me a little bit, that Virgil's doing. Okay. Um, all right, so the, that's the important thing about the, uh, to me, that's the important thing about the, uh, those that are excommunicated. Okay, so uh, in case you're worried about being excommunicated, we don't really need to worry about that anymore. Um, yeah, the late repentant. Um, I mentioned them before. Really, these are, well, I think I need to mention one of these. Um, this is, I think I've got a picture of Pia de Ptolemy. Um, yeah, the late repentant, the, the, the two characters, really. Uh, one is that Buonconte de Montefeltro, Guido's son. Uh, he died in battle and... Um, he, on his last words were Maria. Um, he died. An angel and a demon both come to take him. So it looks like the scene uh, with his father where St. Francis comes and then the uh, evil cherubim. Um, as I mentioned, Guido pre-repents. Buonconte late repents. And so he gets to be taken by the angel. Uh, but the demon got his body. And caused a great storm uh, to wash it away. Uh, and Dante tells the story because the body was never recovered from the battle. 
So the demon gets something out of it, gets the body, but of course the body will be re resurrected on the final day. So the, the demon's victory is short-lived. Um, this is the, maybe this is the first character that uh, prays for Dante and asks for Dante's prayer. And this is the one that I mentioned that his wife is not even praying for him because everyone assumed that he'd be in hell. Okay, so that's a lesson too. Don't assume that. Um, uh, next, he meets very, very briefly Pia de Ptolemy, who was murdered by her husband, um, which we saw with Francesca. Uh, was murdered by hers. So it's a parallel story. Uh, she's a late repentant, and she says I, only one sentence, I believe. It's very, very brief. And so she's a contrast to Francesca. Francesca's the one that was always talking, 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 love, love, love. And Paolo's weeping, but maybe because uh, she won't be quiet. Uh, Pia is a, is a contrast of humility uh, to her. She doesn't uh, defend herself. She's grateful, of course, for being in uh, Purgatorio. She was murdered by her husband. Uh, but that's it. She doesn't give a long story. Um, there is um, there's another character they run into, Sordello. Um, and the only really thing I'm going to talk about here is, as a side note, um, Dante uh, rails against Italy, uh, which he does a lot in the Inferno, but he continues it in the Purgatorio and even up into the Paradiso, because Sordello um, ignores Dante but embraces Virgil because they're from the same city of Mantua, and he recognizes Virgil's accent. And so Dante then goes on and on about Italy and the various factions of the cities and how terrible it is. And in the uh, the families that he names, among the families that he names, are the Capaletti and Montecchi. The Capaletti and the Montecchi. In English, they're known as the Capulets and the Montagues. Okay, so Shakespeare didn't make that up, not the whole thing, some of it, I'm sure. Okay, um, so a lesson there for us. Um, Eventually, there are other uh, various uh, characters who are, you know, fall into the late uh, repentant category, but the idea, you know, is basically repeated uh, without going into a lot of detail. Uh, there is, uh, he sees Judge Nino, who's the grandson of Count Ugolino, who's in hell. So he's, he's a lot of, he has a family, actually, uh, there's one family where there's one in hell, one in purgatory, and one in heaven right now. So basically covering the bases. And uh, that actually is uh, another question uh, that Dante asks, I don't think we'll go over it, which is basically why uh, can a good tree produce bad fruit? Uh, so I can have good families that have bad children. And uh, Dante shows that this is possible by putting family members, brothers and sisters, into the various regions. Okay, well, at least two are saved and one not, so that's good for the family. Uh, Canto 9 is when he gets to the gate of uh, purgatory. Canto 9 in the Inferno is when he gets to the gate to the city of Dis, so he obviously uh, wants us to see a parallel there. Um, and to uh, go up the gate, there's an angel there who's sitting in for uh, seemingly St. Peter. Um, there are three steps. There's a white marble. One, you can see that maybe in the picture. Uh, there is a deep 
purple one. The, the white one is polished like a mirror, so you can see yourself in it. The, uh, the deep purple one is rough and crumbling. Uh, and then there's a red one. Okay, red is blood, we're told. So the, in order to progress in the spiritual life, uh, one must look at oneself as in a mirror, and that's the first step, right? That is the examination of conscience, for instance. Uh, one, uh, like the second step, must be broken, and that is the contrition or the sorrow for one's sins. Um, and then one must uh, do one's penance, which is represented by the, uh, the blood red of the third step. So when Dante, it looks like pretty easy steps to go up, uh, but they uh, are uh, representative of what Dante must accomplish and what every human being must accomplish. Now, now we need to, I think, uh, talk here about the allegory. Um, this uh, hell is the punishment for sins, but it, he intends us to see in hell sins for what they are, which is why Satan is so kind of an ugly creature, and Satan is... He's large and ugly, um, but he, uh, in the end, he has, he's the king of uh, an empty kingdom. There's no one that listens to him. He's a false king. Um, so that's part of it. But there's also just the ugliness of sin. Uh, but, of course, he presents himself as something beautiful, which sin does. Uh, and purgatory, then, is not simply the souls who have died and gone to purgatory, uh, but this is... Uh, our path that we must take as well in order to purge our sins, be it now or later. It's got to be done at some point. You, if you're going to get to heaven, you can't avoid the detachment from sin. So this can be undertaken, since this is an, an allegory, it can be undertaken now. You don't have to wait for it. Uh, once you see what he has to do, you might not want to, but um, if you have faith and hope, uh, then you can do this joyfully, is the idea. Uh, Dante falls to his uh, knees here, smites his breast three times, you know, the mea culpa, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa, which was thankfully restored in the last couple of years, uh, through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault. Not grievous, by the way. Uh, the angel inscribes, the angel there inscribes seven Ps, on his forehead, and they, the P stands for peccata or uh, sins, and those are erased as he goes up. So he's um, tattooed in a way with a reminder of his sins. Um, he's told uh, Virgil and Dante to enter but do not look back, which means to go back out again. So uh, this is one of those times when um, Dante must push forward without looking back. Um, he looked back at the very beginning at the, the, the dark woods, which is a bad sign. I don't think I pointed this out, but when he leaves the wood of the suicides, after he's gone for a while, he makes a point of saying he did not turn back. He didn't know if he could see the woods because he did not turn back and look at them. And it's, that's actually, I think, a very significant scene in the Inferno because we have two uh, scenes of woods that Dante goes through. Um, the wood of the suicide, second, and then this wood of sin. So I think my own interpretation is that Dante's sin that puts him into the 
dark wood at the beginning of the tale is despair because that's the sin of the suicides. In, uh, that's what the root of their sin is despair. Dante never tells us what his sin is. We know that he's a, he has other, he, we know that he is attached uh, to some degree to pride. We see that soon and uh, mostly to lust. That's what he tells us through his, he doesn't, that's the most painful for him to pass through. So we know he, he uh, accuses himself of those sins. Uh, but I think there's despair as well, which is why there is the need of divine intervention uh, and the sending of Virgil to him to get him out of this because that's a dangerous, dangerous sin. Okay, so he must go forward uh, and upward and around at the same time as he goes. Um, okay, so he passes that. Uh, he gets to the uh, uh, proud here. Um, that's the excessive love of one's own excellence or to the detriment of uh, one's neighbor. The, uh, the whips of humility are carved into the stone, and he calls this the art of visible speech. It's as though the stone were alive, uh, and he sees these stories. One of them, these are all whips of humility, so they're all examples of humility because humility is the virtue uh, to counteract uh, pride. Uh, the Annunciation is one. Uh, there is the scene of David dancing before the ark uh, and then a, a story of Trajan and the widow, a famous story where uh, Trajan, although he's the emperor, uh, is moved to tears by the story of the poor widow has for her son and he, um, or her, um, <coughs> excuse me, her murdered son and uh, he shows her mercy. <coughs> okay. Their penances are to carry these heavy weights on their backs because they stood so tall and they were haughty. They have to be made humble, right? So they're, they're bent low. Okay, so that is the, the penance. Of course, they take, they're taking these uh, willingly uh, as they go. Uh, we're told uh, by Dante, he addresses the haughty Christians who put their trust in things that pull them back. We are worms each born to form the angelic butterfly that flies defenseless to the final judge. So a lovely image of the worm, a humble creature that becomes the butterfly or the saint. So the beauty of the butterfly is made possible by the humility of what he calls the worm. Okay. Um, then there are the, um, the uh, bridles of pride, which are various... Uh, scenes, Lucifer's one of them, famous one. Um, that's the most important one there. But there, there are several, there, there are quite a few. There's uh, maybe a dozen different examples of pride, different kinds of pride, which we don't need to go into. Envy. Um, their, their benediction, by the way, as you see on the, on the chart, is blessed are the poor in spirit, right? That's the humility that they need to learn. Uh, the envies are next. Envy is the next sin. Sometimes envy is classified. In some lists, you'll see envy as the most uh, deadly of the sins. In some, you'll see sloth. Um, but pride, I think, um, holds the pride of place, um, mostly. Um, this is an interesting. Uh, envy is, um, you could say, sorrow at another's good fortune. There's the opposite, which is called uh, schadenfreude, which is uh, uh, pleasure at... Um, there's sorrow at good fortune and pleasure at misfortune. And he, he gets both of those uh, examples. The, um, these characters are 
uh, lying about, sitting against the, the wall, and their eyes are sewn shut. Uh, and Dante even says, when he gets to purgatory, as he hopes he will, he won't spend much time here. So Dante doesn't think that he's guilty of envy. The reason their eyes are sewn shut is the eye is the organ of envy in a way, right? Because you see what other people, what other people have. And then there's covetousness that can follow from that as well. Um, the um, uh, the uh, uh, Blessed Virgin at Cana is the main whip there. Uh, they have no wine. Uh, and so uh, she is, there's a kind of generosity that's necessary to overcome envy, right? Some kind of generosity or, uh, or liberality. Um, the characters that he meets are curious. Uh, they hear Dante and Virgil, and they start talking about them. Uh, who, one asks, who is roaming around our mountainside before his soul is given wings by death, opening his eyes and closing them at will? And so the reason he's on this, the, 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 the sinner shows that he still is attached to envy. He envies, he doesn't see, but he hears, and he envies Dante's uh, circumstance. And so he, that's evidence that he must stay here. His punishment has not been sufficient. At the moment that he no longer envies, uh, he can get up himself, I guess, unsew the eyelid and progress to the next stage. It's always up to you to progress. You decide. But then, of course, you don't want to until you're purified. So it's uh, St. Augustine, love and do what you will. Uh, their wills are still aligned to, to God, so they know when they no longer have the attachment. So they're, they're willingly suffering uh, this, okay? Uh, Cain is uh, the bridal of envy, of course. He envied the, the, uh, the accepted sacrifice. Um, the benedic benediction, uh, blessed are the merciful. Uh, wrath. Um, the opposing virtue of wrath is uh, meekness. Uh, Mary and Joseph find Jesus in the temple. Um, that is the, one of the stories, example of meekness, because they could have been angry at that, I suppose. St. Stephen being stoned to death is another one, the opposite of wrath. Um, this is a very smoky. There's bitter s smoke that's burning the eyes, and Dante kind of has to close his eyes and, and let Virgil uh, guide him. Um, so uh, the uh, smoke is too much for Dante here. Uh, he had his eyes open with the envious, but not here. So maybe there's a you know, certain amount of wrath that uh, Dante must rid himself of as he passes uh, through that circle. Um, the various the different bridal, uh, different examples of wrath uh, against kindred and friends, God's chosen. Uh, etc. Uh, many, many examples of that. Blessed are the peacemakers is the uh, beatitude there. Um, in the midst of all this, Virgil delivers a couple of discourses on love. Uh, and I'll mention these because uh, they have to do with the, the structure of hell. Um, but he says there are two kinds of love, natural love and rational love. And natural love is basically instinct, and it's never at fault in and of itself because it's not the intellect or the will. Then there's rational love, which can err by choosing the wrong goal, by insufficient zeal, 
or excessive zeal. It cannot err while it's fixed on the eternal good, while at the same time observing temperance in loving worldly good. So you can see in upper purgatory, remember the structure there. If one is fixed on the eternal good God and is temperate with the secondary goods, it cannot err. It'd be a kind of perfect love. So fix uh, your mind and will on God and be temperate in worldly goods, and then you'll be fine. Okay, Easier said than done. And then it errs when it turns toward evil and pursues some good with excessive or deficient zeal. Those are right there in lower, middle, and upper purgatory. Okay, so a little, uh, he actually speaks more and more and more detail about this, uh, but we'll go on. Uh, he gets to the slothful. Uh, this is lack of zeal for God. It's not simply laziness. Someone can have a lot of energy, but have no zeal for God, the primary good. Okay, so... Uh, in fact, someone who lacks zeal for God could be excessively busy uh, because, of course, their lack of zeal is, uh, would be a thing they have to cover over uh, because like the, uh, the souls in limbo, uh, there would be some innate recognition of an unfulfilled desire. So uh, being overly busy could hide uh, the um, sloth or the acedia or sadia uh, the uh, lack of zeal. These, of course, the, the, the solution to, to sloth is to make these people run around a lot. Uh, so Dante does recognize that the, there is an element of what we call laziness in sloth. It's spiritual, though, but he's manifested it in a physical way. Uh, Mary ran in haste to the hills, we hear, as the whip of zeal. Uh, and then the bridle of sloth the Israelites lagging behind um, and got swallowed by the Red Sea. Uh, and then the certain Trojans who didn't follow Aeneas all the way to Italy, they hung around at one of the ports and uh, didn't want to leave. Uh, Dante has a very, very strange dream around here uh, before he, uh, it goes on up to the um, avarice. And uh, I wanted to go over this in detail because it's so odd and telling. Um, so it's a lesson that he learns, but not one that someone preaches to him, right, or teaches him. It's a dream that he has. Just before dawn, and they have to stop at night. They can't progress during the night. Just before dawn, Dante has a dream of a woman stuttering, cross-eyed, stumbling on maimed feet with ugly yellow skin and deformed hands. That's quite a way to begin a dream. Okay, so not lovely or beautiful at all. Dante stares at her, and she becomes beautiful. She sings and captures Dante's mind. She is the sweet siren, as she is singing, a saintly lady appears at Dante's side and cries out to Virgil. Virgil seizes the siren and rips off her garments, revealing her belly, the stench from which wakes Dante from his sleep. Virgil later calls the siren that ageless sorceress for whom alone the souls above must weep, that is, the souls in upper purgatory, who are guilty of the excessive love of secondary goods because we've passed by the deficient love of the primary good we're not going to the, to the uh, excessive love of secondary goods, uh, wealth, food and drink, persons, etc. So the siren seems to represent the soul's excessive desire for the secondary good. It is this disordered love which makes the contingent thing, the thing that could not be, into the absolute, who is the cre uh, it turns the, the creature into the creator. Thus the power of the imagination is guilty 
for overestimating the happiness that the created world can give. So uh, Dante sees um, the truth at first when he sees the siren. He sees the truth that the promise uh, that she offers uh, is a lie. But in his imagination, he begins to believe uh, what he wants to believe about her. And she becomes beautiful. So he knows at first the sin. But as he thinks about it, the sin doesn't seem so bad. And maybe he would like to commit it after all. So um, I think it's, it's um, uh, a pretty interesting um, process. And I don't, I don't know how many people would agree that that has happened to them. I don't know that that's universal. Um, but for Dante, it's true. And I can see how it could be universally true. I can't say that it is. Uh, of course, one must know what, what the sin is and that it's sin. Um, but I think some sins can work this way. So the ugly is turned into the beautiful. Okay. Anyway, I find that uh, very, that the whole image of the dream, it's mysterious, but that seems to be what it's about. Uh, the slothful, the one group that doesn't have the prayer, okay, oh, he has to put an exception into the, uh, into the uh, purgatory. But it seems to be their labor, their work, their, their motion is their prayer. At least, I can't remember if, um, or the, 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 it said, strive to do good that grace may bloom again. So that's where you get that. Okay. The uh, purgatory was the three. Purgatory was Dorothy Sayers' favorite of the three. Um, it's easy to make the Inferno your favorite because it's the most exciting. Uh, there, a lot happens. Dante's falling down all the time and fainting and crying and he kicks one guy in the head and he pulls the hair out of another guy and he curses the guy in the river sticks and there's a lot of action. Um, and there's not so much, but she, uh, Dorothy Sayers, loved the, I think, the order and the beauty of purgatory while it was also something that we can experience directly here uh, and now because one can go, undergo these, these um, purgations. So that the, there's a beauty of the Paradiso, but it is beyond us in a way that the purgatory is not. And we hope that the inferno eventually repulses us, actually. Not as a work of art, but that the, what Dante experiences uh, re repulses us, because we should be repulsed by the sin. Uh, the avaricious there, uh, it's a strange uh, punishment. They have to cleave to the ground. Um, this excessive desire for wealth. So I suppose that you know, they just wallow in the dirt. Uh, it's you know, dirt cheap, I suppose, is kind of the idea here. Um, there's a uh, quotation about Mary and how poor she was, and then uh, various examples of avarice uh, given as well. Uh, the mountain shakes at this point. He hears Gloria in Excelsis Deo uh, sung. There's, there's a lot of music actually here. I haven't mentioned that. I gave you some list of songs. I don't think I even gave all, gave all of them. But there's a lot of music in Purgatory. There is wailing and gnashing of teeth in the Inferno, and it's painful to the ears. There's joyful singing in the Purgatory. Uh, they come across a Statius, who was a first century Roman poet, 
uh, whether or not, he says that he converted secretly before he died. I think that's made up by Dante, or maybe there's no uh, firm historical evidence of that. Uh, Statius is a very interesting story. Uh, he's talking to uh, Dante about Virgil and the Aeneid, not knowing that Virgil is the other guy there. And um, he became a Christian in part by reading Virgil. So the uh, virtue found in Virgil is part of his inspiration. Uh, so here we have um, you know, this idea that God uh, can work in ways that we don't otherwise expect, right? He works uh, through a pagan author in the case of Virgil. Uh, the uh, benediction of the avaricious and the prodigal, they're here as well, are blessed are they who thirst for righteousness. Um, the avaricious and the prodigal must learn to desire justice, that's the righteousness, uh, paying each man what uh, he is due because they don't do that, especially the avaricious. Okay, so um, that encounter with Statius. And Statius, uh, uh, he's just progressed up to the next level, uh, and that's what the shouting was all about, not the shouting, but the Gloria. And so he, um, he kind of hangs around with them as uh, they progress upwards. He goes along with them. The, uh, he was a prodigal, actually, uh, he says, rather than uh, avaricious. Uh, the gluttons, uh, they are, it's very obvious punishment. Uh, they're walking around and they're this beautiful tree. Uh, the branches, rather than hanging down this way, they hang up that way so they can't reach the branches and there's a beautiful fruit and they can't get it. They can't get the food and there's this, this waterfall falling on to the leaves, but of course there's no water coming to them. And so uh, they must um, be denied uh, those things that they so wanted. Uh, their prayer is, open my lips, O Lord, and my mouth shall proclaim your praises. Okay, which is an appropriate prayer for them because they were opening their lips not to proclaim the praise of God, but to stuff their mouths with food. Okay. Um, all right, so they must pass uh, by the, the, the food until they no longer uh, desire it. Um, there's a lot more here. I'm getting towards the end. Um, so let's conclude with the gluttons. Um, I've got um, actually the, the best in the Purgatorio is saved for last. It is at the very top. And I'm just going to skip ahead and show you the slide that um, you know, it's artistic rendering. That's Dante passing through the fires of lust. It's this slide, which is a pageant. Uh, in which we meet Virgil, I mean, I'm sorry, Beatrice, but just to whet the appetite um, for you, um, there is a canopy. It, it, it's described to be something like a Eucharistic procession, like a Corpus Christi procession. There's a canopy. Um, there are the candles. There's a canopy. And under the canopy where the Blessed Sacrament would be carried is Beatrice, okay? So I uh, might not be able to see that in, in this particular draw, drawing. Uh, anyway, that is, uh, in some respects, the most interesting that Dante, thing that Dante does in the Purgatory. It's at the very top once he gets to the earthly paradise and he sees this pageant. So we'll save that for next week, but you can think in the meantime what it might mean 
allegorically uh, to, for Dante uh, and for us, knowing who Beatrice is for Dante, to have her in the Corpus Christi procession, or it looks like that, in the place of the Blessed Sacrament. It might seem, at first, to be a sacrilege, okay? So it's not bad to pursue that thought. Is this a sacrilege uh, that Dante is committing, or, there, or is there something else? And then maybe I'll, I'll try to remember to ask that question, what might that possibly mean? Uh, and some may take the sacrilege point, and maybe someone take another point. It's not. It's something not sacrilegious, which would be better than having something sacrilegious. So anyway, I'll get to that at some point early on next week, and then we'll go through heaven, and maybe I should go back to hell too. But Okay. Um, any... Questions?